Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 71. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus, in that episode covering what is known about manna, as first found in Exodus chapter 16. In covering manna, I skipped over what happened the night before the first manna arrived. That evening, God delivered quail to them, so that their diet was not only manna, but also meat. So, I'll begin this episode with what we know about this quail, and then continue through the book, covering Rephidim, Massa, Meribah, and the Amalekites. And with that, let's get started. Of course, quail is a bird, but like so many things with such a common name, there isn't just one species. On that side of the globe, there are at least 16 different types of quail. Add in the Americas, meaning north and south, and you get another 29 different birds. Obviously, these in the Americas were probably not the same as the ones in Exodus. The general thinking is that that honor belongs to what is known as the common quail, and that certainly makes sense. And when you see a group of quail, like the Israelites did, they are known as a flock covey or bevy. The common quail, well, really most quails, are shy birds. When threatened, they tend to freeze in place, relying on their camouflage to escape a predator, instead of attempting to outfly or outrun it. Unlike the North American bobwhite quail, so named for its distinctive call, the common quail has a call that has been vocalized as resembling the phrase, wet my lips, at least from the male of the species, and if the bird spoke English. Given its proclivity to be shy, coupled with this distinctive call, it's more often heard than seen. When they are seen, actually, it's also true when they're not. Anyway, they're small birds, up to about 9 inches or 22 centimeters in length, and weighing, at most, about 5 ounces or 130 grams. Not very big, and therefore not much meat on their bones. But this is true for nearly all flying birds. Like everything airborne, weight comes at a cost, and that cost is not flying. But even without much meat, when you're starving in the desert, quail will do just fine. Despite the ability to fly most of the time, at least when they're not migrating, they live on the ground, foraging on seeds and insects, and running or hiding from predators. Then, when they do take to the air, it's usually a low flight, merely moving a hundred yards or meters or so, escaping to the next hiding place. But they do fly great distances when migrating, which likely played into the Exodus story. About this migration, the subspecies found in the area is known to frequently migrate through the Sinai Peninsula, so the story certainly seems plausible. And that's it for quail. Next in Exodus chapter 17, we see a place called Rephidim, specifically as a place where the Israelites encamped. We're also told that there was no natural source of water there. It was here that Moses was able to extract water from a rock, obviously with a bit of divine help. 
From the text, From the wilderness of Sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? End quote. I'll get to those last two places in a minute. For now, know that Massa translates to testing, and Meribah to quarreling. But before getting to them, first Rephidim. The actual location of Rephidim is debated. It's generally thought to be one of a couple different wadis on the Sinai. Two of these, the Wadi Solof and the Wadi Eshake, converge at the entrance to the Ararea Plain. This plain it may be the same as the Sinai Wilderness, but there's also the Wadi Farin, which was an oasis. It's essentially a mostly dry riverbed, occasionally filling as precipitation allows. It begins on the site of Mount Sinai, near the St. Catherine's Monastery, and eventually empties into the Red Sea, at least when it's flowing. And an oasis would explain why the Israelites battled the Amalekites, essentially for water. But it wouldn't explain why the people complained about being thirsty. Unless it was the water from the rock episode that led to the creation of the oasis. But that's pure speculation. Either way, they were in a desert and not very happy. And that's it for Rephidim. I'll get to the Amalekites later in this episode. First, the two places I skipped. There is a debate over whether Nasa or Meribah are two names for the same location or two different places. Old Testament textual evidence contributes to the confusion. They both did warrant a historical mention in Psalms chapter 95, which reads, Oh, that day you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. It was the next passage in Psalms 95 that leads many to presume it was this incident that led to the forty years of wandering, quoting again, for forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger I swore, they shall not enter my rest. End quote. 
Of course, Psalms 95 was written well after the 40 years journey, so interpret it as you see fit. That's it for Massa. Fortunately, there's a bit more known about Meribah, but just a bit. The same story that's told in Exodus is also recounted in the book of Numbers, but with a few differences. First, we get a bit of family history, quoting again from the New Revised Standard Version. The Israelites, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there, end quote. As you should have noticed, the place is called Kadesh, not Rephidim. Then it's the same as in Exodus, with the Israelites complaining. This time, their complaints had a bit more detail. Not only were they thirsty, but they also complained that the land they were traveling through wasn't suited for crops, specifically grain, figs, vines, or pomegranates. Picking up again, then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord, as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and by which he showed his holiness. End quote. In Numbers, after the water from stone narrative, both Moses and Aaron are chastised by God for not trusting him. He then tells the brotherly pair that they will not be allowed to enter Canaan at the end of the journey. The actual reason for this punishment is the subject of debate. One camp holds that it's because he struck the rock twice, rather than just speaking to it as he had been told to do. Another camp blames his insulting the Israelites with the phrase, You rebels! Yet another group blames him seemingly taking credit for the water from a rock miracle and not giving proper credit to God. We're never directly told why, but we certainly know that neither he nor his brother were allowed into the promised land. As for the location, the general thinking, and by general, at least in this case, I mean the Septuagint, Targums, and the Vulgate consider Meribah as simply being a common noun rather than a place name. At a minimum, that seems plausible. The other clue is that shortly after leaving this stopping point, they arrived at Mount Sinai. So, at least in the general vicinity of the legendary mountain. 
And that's it for the two places whose names translate to testing and quarreling. Which brings me to the Amalekites, the people who the Israelites fought with while encamped at Rephidim. Backing up to Genesis, Amalek was a grandson of Esau, and therefore from the line of Abraham and thought to be the founder of the Amalekites. But they were mentioned earlier in Genesis, in the 14th chapter, where the country of the Amalekites serves as a place name. How to reconcile this? Well, it's a bit speculative, but when Moses wrote this portion of the book, he may have been using a more modern place name. But others have weighed in on the discussion. After the rise of Islam, their scholars addressed the issue. Some of these Islamic scholars wrote that the Amalekites existed long before Abraham. Others would claim that the Amalekites who fought Joshua were descendants of people from North Africa. An Islamic scholar named Ibn Arabshah asserted that Amalek was a descendant of Ham, son of Noah. Unfortunately, like what's in Genesis and Exodus, these scholars had no outside records to lean on, and Egyptian and Assyrian records from the era do not mention them specifically either. But, as we've seen far more times than I can recall, this is somewhat meaningless, as the Egyptians and Assyrians could have called them something else. Numbers chapter 24 claims that Amalek was first among the nations. What this first means is a bit debated. It could either be one of the first nations to arise post-flood, or it would have been among the first to fight Israel post-Exodus. Obviously, the word first is subject to interpretation. Matthew George Easton a 19th century Scottish theologian claimed that the Babylonian word Suti and the Egyptian word Situi referred to the Amalekites. Easton also claims that the Armana tablets referred to the Amalekites under the general name Kabati, or plunderers, and this certainly aligns with the text of the Old Testament. I'll get to that specific passage in a minute. According to Numbers chapter 13, the Amalekites inhabited the Negev region. This area is to the east of the Sinai Peninsula and stretches north into Canaan. Some of the land is desert, while a few portions marginally support agriculture. Today, it's mostly in the country of Israel. It's thought that the Amalekites were nomadic, and they would interact with the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Considering they were competing for the same territory, it should come as no surprise that most of these interactions were less than friendly. Obviously, especially since I've already mentioned it, the two groups fought each other in Exodus chapter 17. Essentially, in this battle, Joshua is commanded by Moses to lead Israel into the battle, while Moses, along with a select group of elders, watch from a hillside. Moses, in a very indirect manner, serves as an orchestra conductor. When he raises his hands, the Israeli army gets the upper hand, and when he lowers his hands, the Amalekites begin to win. Then a bit of genius to deal with his tiring arms. The elders with him, a group that included Aaron, got a stone for him to sit on. And they, 
specifically Aaron and Hur, held his arms up, one on each side. That's certainly one way to win a battle. Next, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, the Amalekites invade both Negev and Ziklag. Like the Negev, Ziklag is located in the Judean plain, towards the border with Philistia, and we don't know where exactly it was. These events occurred in the latter part of King Saul's rule. When they invaded, they burned the city of Ziklag and enslaved the residents, which included two of David's wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. It appears that only women and children were taken, as the men aren't mentioned. It's presumed they died in the preceding battle. Then David, the future king of the united Israel, would lead a successful mission against the Amalekites to recover everything the Amalekites had taken. The assumption is that the recovery wasn't just the people, but also the spoils, or better stated, the plunders of war taken by the plunderers, just like the Scottish theologian mentioned. In the follow-up book by Samuel, so 2 Samuel, in its first chapter, it is an Amalekite man who tells David of King Saul's fate suffered at the hands of the Philistines. From the New Revised Standard Version, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and did obeisance. Quick sidebar. Obeisance is simply a multisyllabic way of saying, he bowed. Unpausing. David said to him, Where have you come from? He said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Tell me. He answered, The army fled from the battle, but also many of the army fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan also died. Then David asked the young man who was reporting to him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan died? The young man reporting to him said, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning against his spear, while the chariots and the horsemen drew close to him. When he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. I answered, Here, sir. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me, Come, stand over me, and kill me, for convulsions have seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, for I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the helmet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. End quote. In the next paragraph, David would have the Amalekite man killed. Overall, in Judaism, the Amalekites came to represent the model enemy for the Jews, to the point that in Jewish folklore, the Amalekites are considered to be the symbol of pure evil. Jewish and Israeli scholars have described this view as the Amalekites representing an eternally irreconcilable enemy. Jews in the post-biblical eras sometimes associate contemporary enemies with the Amalekites. 
Some modern groups commonly compared to the Amalekites are Nazis, Stalinists, and recent belligerent Iranian leaders. The ancient Romans also fell into this camp. Less literal and more figurative, Amalek came to represent atheism or the rejection of God. This claim was potentially rooted in Midrash writings where the Amalekites were sorcerers who could transform themselves to resemble animals in order to avoid capture. This was a potential explanation of 1 Samuel chapter 15, where the prophet Samuel told King Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel, and now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul didn't do as instructed and allowed the Amalekite king, King Agag, to live, along with the best sheep, cattle, fatlings, lambs, and all that was valuable. And God told Samuel, who told Saul, that the Almighty was displeased in Saul's failure to follow the plan. Saul then personally executed King Agag. Despite this, God remained displeased with King Saul. Soon after this, at God's direction, Samuel found the young David, and much to his family's surprise, anointed him as the next king of Israel. That's enough of that for now. Back to the Amalekites. I may have mentioned it before, but just in case I haven't, in the books of the Old Testament are some 613 laws. Think of them as supplemental commandments. Of these, three by name refer to the Amalekites, and all are found in the latter part of the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy. Specifically, the Israelites were told to remember what Amalek did to the Israelites. Second, to wipe out the descendants of Amalek. And third, not to forget Amalek's atrocities and ambush on their journey from Egypt in the desert. If you're paying attention, number three is a more verbose version of number one. In the New Revised Standard Version, it reads, Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way, when you were faint and weary and struck down all who lagged behind you. He did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies on every hand, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. End quote. Now, most modern scholars posit that the law to blot out only applies to a Jewish king or organized community and cannot be performed by an individual. Other writers claim that the law to destroy the nation of Amalek requires the Jewish people to peacefully request that the Amalekites accept the seven laws of Noah and pay a tax to the Jewish kingdom. If they refuse this tax, only then are they to be killed. Obviously, the law to kill all Amalekites is no longer practiced. 
and considering the debate over who this nation really was, it's practically impossible to even identify modern Amalekites. There are other writings, such as to not kill, but merely not acknowledge, or simply to hate. Finally, some leave the vengeance up to God, which is not only a good general guiding principle, but also a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Mount Sinai. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.